It's Friday, 10th of February, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and I'm joined once again by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. The past few weeks, we've been focused largely on what's been happening in advanced economies. But what's going on in EMs, in, in emerging markets, is really interesting. I thought we could go through that. Coming up, we've got senior economists for our EM team talking about the Adani Group's woes and the macro stability risks around the Indian banking system and the risks for EMs more generally that come from banking. But I thought we could take another step back because this has been a really notable global tightening cycle, and I thought it'd be worth talking about what that means for EMs. So this year is the 25th anniversary of when the Asian financial crisis went truly global. Asia in 1998 spiraled further down from the crisis that started the year before. In Indonesia, Suharto, President Suharto's thrown out of office. But also you've got Mexico and Brazil getting hammered and, and Russia defaulting, the IMF flying around pushing austerity as economies collapse and markets melt down. Uh, and it's all capped by the failure of the LTCM hedge fund, which made these bets on, on moves in markets that went spectacularly wrong. Uh, and then Time magazine had that very famous cover about the committee to save the world with Larry Summers and, and Robert Rubin and Alan Greenspan. There's lots of reasons for the crisis, but one of the triggers was Fed tightening earlier in the decade. We've had nearly 500 basis points of Fed hikes in this, the most aggressive tightening cycle since the early 80s. For the most part, I guess that's key, EMs have been relatively quiet. So, so why is this time different? Well, I think you have to go back to 97, 98, as you say, 25 years since those crises started to really understand why this time is different, because it was those crises that laid the foundations for reform in emerging economies that mean that they're now much better placed to withstand this tightening cycle. No, you don't have to cast your mind back 25 years, cast your mind back 12 months. And there's lots of commentary about how Fed tightening would precipitate uh, crises across emerging economies. Now, we were always a bit skeptical about that because of the fact that the balance sheet vulnerabilities in emerging economies to our minds just weren't there anymore. At least they were less sensitive to the effects of Fed tightening. The key issue is that why in the clock about 25 years, EMs were borrowing principally in foreign currencies in US dollars. That, that created some balance sheet mismatches. They had fixed exchange pegs. When those broke, you got really extreme balance sheet strains. And of course, higher US rates means higher rates on foreign currency borrowing. This time though, most EMs borrow in local currency. There's been a huge expansion of domestic currency debt markets in EMs over the past 25 years, precisely in response to those crises. So we've had the most aggressive tightening cycle in the US and in other advanced economies for 40 years, but EMs by and large have come through it in relatively good shape. Now, there's been some exceptions we can get onto to, to those, but by and large, you look at the major EMs, they've come through in much better shape. They're slowing, some are in recession. They've certainly had the same inflation challenges, but we're not having the same systemic um, crises that we had in, in 97, 98. So you mentioned those inflation challenges. EMs have also been caught up in this global inflation surge. How have they handled it? How have central banks in emerging markets managed the, the, the surge in price pressures? Well, I think anyone looking to time and understand what central banks do in inflation cycles, the temptation is to look to history. Often history is a bit of a guide to these things. And typically what tends to happen is EM central banks tend to follow the Fed. So the Fed tightens, EM central banks tighten. The Fed loosens, EM central banks loosen. This time, however, was 
different in one important respect, which is although EM and DM policy cycles have been broadly aligned, i.e. rates have been going up everywhere, it's been the EM central banks that have led in this tightening cycle. They've not stuck around and waited to see what the Fed or the ECB or the Bank of England are doing. They have just got on and tightened. When the Fed was still debating whether or not inflation was transitory, EM central banks didn't hang around to wait and see whether it was transitory. They just got on with hiking and they hiked pretty aggressively. In most of the major emerging economies outside of Asia, we estimate the policy rates are now well above their, their neutral rates. So they've hiked early and they've hiked pretty aggressively. And I think that speaks to a difference in attitudes towards inflation across emerging market central banks compared to advanced economy central banks. Generally, central bank governors and policymakers in the emerging world, they were schooled in the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s. They came through in a generation that was scarred by inflation or had experienced very rapid rates of inflation firsthand. So that meant, I think, they acted pretty early. And, and like I say, they didn't wait to follow the Fed. And where are they in the cycle now? We've This week, we've had some more decisions coming in. What can we learn from, from those? Well, over the past week, we've had central bank meetings in India, in Mexico, in places like Peru, Romania. This is obviously one of the pitfalls, I think, of any EM analysis is to say emerging markets are doing X, Y, or Z. There's clearly a lot of diversity within that group and differences across that group. So we had a pretty hawkish move by the Mexican Central Bank. They raised by 50 basis points and issued a pretty hawkish statement. But I think the main message across EM central banks is that a number are now have now signaled that they've finished with their tightening. Now, they're not yet contemplating easing, but I think it's notable that several mid, mid-sized EM central banks have uh, called a halt to the tightening so far. They've they've paused. That was the case in Peru and Romania in, in the past week. In in the case of India, there's less of a clear signal, but we think they, they've probably finished. The Reserve Bank there has probably finished its tightening cycle too. So you have this message coming through where it looks like EM central banks were earlier to start tightening. They tightened more aggressively, and I think they're going to be earlier to complete tightening too. The markets are still contemplating, of course, just how far the Fed's going to have to go, how long rates are going to have to be kept at these very high levels. In EMs, that debate is a bit more advanced and we've got to the end of tightening cycles a, a bit earlier. So speaking of the Fed, the big release for the coming week is January CPI. We're going to be looking for more evidence of disinflation, but it's coming off the back of that massive jobs number. How will that play out? Yeah, so just on the inflation number, there's going to be some focus obviously on the headline number. There's been a rebound in gas prices and petrol prices in the US over the past month or so, that will show up in the data. But equally, there's been a drop in natural gas prices too. So those two things we think might offset on the headline measure. Of course, the Fed is going to be looking at what's happening to core price pressures, core inflation pressures. That has, I think there's some upside risk there from used vehicle prices, which have been rebounding over the past few weeks and months, according to the auction data. But we've gone for another 0.3% month on month in core. So a bit stronger than the Fed would ideally like, but certainly nowhere near the rates that we were seeing, rates of monthly increases that we were seeing earlier last year, and similar to what we had in, in December's data too. You mentioned some exceptions in this cycle for EMs, and obviously there have been outliers. Sri Lanka and Ghana have defaulted already. Tunisia looks set to follow, and all eyes, of course, are on Pakistan. But in totality, is it fair to say that EMs are out of the woods or is there still a risk of a broader crisis lurking out there? 
I think in totality, probably are out of the woods insofar as there's a risk of a crisis, a systemic crisis across emerging economies. Yes, there are pockets of risks and vulnerabilities. We've been talking about those for the past 12 months on our various EM services. And that's not to downplay the significance for the local economies or indeed local investors in those markets. But I think the risk of systemic crises in, in EMs is relatively low and, and has been low for, for a while, certainly across the major ones. There's a, a different question about whether their economies are out of the woods. And one of the consequences of higher interest rates is going to be, yes, inflation, I think, in EMs is going to come down this year, but growth is going to slow too. Several are already flirting with recession or are in recession. And of course, the global economy, the global backdrop, although it's improved a bit over the past month or so, it's still pretty weak. China's reopening will help a few EMs, particularly those in Southeast Asia, that will benefit from outbound Chinese tourism. But bear in mind that China's domestic rebound is going to be primarily focused on, on things like high contact services and they're mainly local industries. It's not going to be a big kind of surge in imports to China, a big surge in demand in China that will suck in imports and benefit the rest of the world, particularly for commodity producers too. So I think I'd be cautious about the idea that China's reopening is going to be a huge boost for EMs outside of a few in Southeast Asia that will benefit from tourism. Like I say, there's still the pressure from a generally weak global economy the Fed's got more tightening to do if we're thinking that risky assets have got perhaps another leg down to take. That will be a headwind for EM assets too. So not out of the woods insofar as the economics and the markets are concerned, but in terms of a systemic crisis in EMs, certainly much better place than in the past. And I think we probably can sound the all clear on that front. That was Neil Shearing on how EMs are coming through this inflation and tightening cycle. He mentioned the RBI, whose governor Das got questions this past week about the threat posed by the crisis around India's Adani Group. Shares in the conglomerate's companies have collapsed by more than half in just a few short weeks, after a short seller alleged stock manipulation and accounting fraud. Now, this is a corporate story, but Adani's size and reach means that there are potential macro risks too. Shilin Shah and Liam Peach from our EM team discussed how India's banking system could be exposed to the Adani Group, but they also pick up on Liam's major new analysis on EM bank vulnerabilities more generally. The conversation starts with Shilin talking about whether the Adani Group crisis is affecting India's economy so far. As it happens, we aren't seeing any real broad signs of contagion. The foreign equity outflows did pick up in the few days after the publication of the initial report, but the moves haven't been especially severe and, and actually inflows into Indian equities return pretty quickly. We're looking at corporate bond spreads as well, and they remain largely unchanged too since the report. That suggests that investors aren't worried about systemic corporate risks at this point. But I think it's important to highlight the areas where risks might take a bit longer to materialize. And one of those is in the banking sector. Many local banks have distanced themselves from the conglomerate, as is their want, of course. We had the RBI sounding pretty bullish, really, uh, on the overall health of the banking sector. But we do know that the Adani Group is highly leveraged, and exposure can also take a long time to surface. Liam, you've been looking into the health of banking sectors, not only in India, but across the emerging world. So when it comes to the ability to absorb loan losses, how does India fare relative to other EMs? And, and I guess, do you share the same confidence as the RBI? Yeah, thanks, Jill. And it's, I think you're referring to a piece that we've done recently looking at 
the health of banking systems across EMs, particularly their ability to absorb loan losses. Now, you know, banks' ability to absorb losses on their loans largely depends on their profitability and their capital. Indian banks have been among the least profitable and they have quite low capital buffers. That's been the case for a number of years now. We've, we've done some analysis. We've looked at the financial accounts of over 500 large banks and EMs across 30 countries. And India's one that stands out to us again as having the, the lowest ability to absorb loan losses. Loan loss capacity of India's banking sector is probably around 7%, 8% for most banks, which is the loss rate they would experience on their loans to wipe out their, or to reduce their capital to the minimum regulatory level. That's quite concerning. So I think, you know, it's if, if spillovers were to occur in India's banking sector, you know, it's clearly some banks may run into problem. We don't know the exact extent of the exposure at the moment, but it's one that does, does shine up on our radar as perhaps most at risk. Yeah, certainly a less rosy assessment than, than the RBI has on Indian banks. On your report, though, I know that you went into really quite painstaking detail. It's a very, very impressive piece on, on the state of emerging market banks. Are there any other EMs that look especially vulnerable to loan losses when it comes to the banking sector? There, there are a few pockets of weakness that we've identified. You know, there are some banks in Asia where loan loss absorption capacity does appear to be quite low. I'm thinking you know, the likes of Korea, Bangladesh, Taiwan, and that's concentrated among a broad range of banks. We've also highlighted some, some vulnerabilities in some other countries, particularly Poland, Colombia, and Israel. Now, banking sectors in those countries on the whole generally look really strong, but there's a cluster of large banks with more than $10 billion of assets where loan loss capacity is probably only around 5%. These are banks with quite low capital adequacy and which may experience problems if loan losses rise sharply. I think the, the actual situation in Poland is quite an interesting one at the moment. Polish banks, or at least a number of Polish banks, have been quite unprofitable in recent years, and a number of them have quite low capital buffers. I think the, the problems that they're facing right now are mainly in two areas. One is that a lot of these banks have quite large exposure to Swiss franc mortgages and having to make large provisions for settlement on those, and that's eating into their profits. And at the same time, the Polish government has put in place a credit vacation, and banks happen to absorb losses on on that as well. So we are seeing some, you know, some risks in some of these countries. I think on the whole, though, the big picture is these are just a handful of banks in a handful of countries. Some of the largest banks in these countries still look very strong and you know, the, the picture in the EM level as a whole looks quite good as well. Yeah, I think even in India's case, I think context is, is really quite important. I mean, over 70% of India's banking sector is, is state-owned, which I think other than China is is a higher share than in all other major emerging markets. And one thing that stood out from the Modi administration is that it has previously demonstrated that it will stand behind banks quite substantially where necessary. This was really, really noticeable back in 2017 with a large-scale recapitalization package. And actually, at the start of the pandemic, the RBI stepped in to support Yes Bank, which, which is one of the few major private lenders in India. So I think that it, it's clear to me that Systemically important banks wouldn't be allowed to fail in India's case. Um, that would, of course, go a long way to mitigating the risk of a of a of a full sort of banking sector meltdown if we did start to see loan losses mounting. So I think instead, the way 
that things could play out in India in that scenario is is more of a sort of slow burning crisis, really, where we get a big build up in MPLs, which then eats into profits and and as a result restricts lending because banks are, are needing to conserve their capital. And sort of bringing that back to the macro impact, I think the result would be a much weaker investment, which in turn holds back the the supply potential of the economy. So it's certainly a downside risk to what is an otherwise pretty upbeat outlook that we have on India's long-term prospects. But what that does mean is that a full banking sector meltdown doesn't seem particularly likely. Um, I thought it was really interesting, though, your your conclusions in that report more broadly on on EMs. So just going just going back to that, I mean, what what does the picture look like at the at the aggregate level? You're alluding to some of the some of the strengths. Yeah, I think the, the good news overall is that EM banking sectors are in a really strong position. Yeah, they've they've come into this year with record high profitability, largely on the back of higher interest rates. Capital ratios are yeah, much higher than they were a decade ago. You know, a lot of banks are in a very strong position to withstand an increase in loan losses. You know, some of the countries that we, we've we looked at, you know, Brazil in particular is looking really strong. Some parts of emerging Europe, you know, the Middle East in particular, looks like they could withstand quite large loan losses. So I think the overall picture is is quite is quite good. You know, focusing on some of the, the banks in particular, I think we'd probably need to see a loan loss rate of more than 10% before solvency issues arose in some of these large banks. A 10% loan loss rate is really high. You know, that rarely happens outside of severe banking crises or deep recessions. You know, we're not anticipating that in the EM world this year or next year. So I think it's really unlikely. Yeah, so I think in wrapping up, really, the, there are pockets of weakness. Um, we've discussed India in a bit of detail, as well as Poland, a couple of other places that look slightly more concerning of places like Colombia and, and Israel. But really, I think the the overwhelming picture from your report, Liam, is that in general, EM banks looking quite highly capitalized and pretty well placed to absorb rising loan losses. And that's it for this episode. I'll put Liam's analysis and more on the Adani Group crisis on the podcast page. And if you're a CE advanced client, you get all the insight discussed here, as well as data and charting tools and much, much more. We're back next week with more on DM and EM risk and a preview of a crunch election in Nigeria. But until then, goodbye.